Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Motorsport Magazine, for the very best in motor racing. On Monday, June the 6th, Motorsport hosted a reader's evening dedicated to the newly released Senna film. After watching the movie, there was an open discussion with ex-McLaren team coordinator Joe Ramirez, the writer and producer of Senna, Manish Pandey, and our editor-in-chief, Nigel Roebuck. The discussion was anchored by Rob Widows, and here it is, unedited and in its entirety. I would very much like this evening to be uh, with you, actually and not just us. So please don't be uh, backward in coming forward to ask a question or make a point or tell us what you thought about it. Uh, we've got about half an hour, well, we've probably got a bit more than half an hour, actually. Um, I just want to get the ball rolling. That, By the way, Nigel Roebuck and I are sharing a microphone. It's quite a big moment, really, so for, me. for me, anyway. Um, Joe. What I want to know is, if anybody knows, you know, how good a view of Ayrton was the film we've just seen. Sorry. Is I it a true, what I'm asking you is, was that a true portrait of the man in your view? Oh, yes, definitely. I think they portrayed Ayrton as a professional, like he was, very much a religious man and the obsession that he had about racing, the obsession that he had about being number one all the time. Second was the first of the losers. That he was not designed to be second. Winning it was his thing, always, all the time. Far too much, it was uh, perhaps the obsession that he took him to his end. Um, <coughs> and then again, we saw as a family man, he loved his family. That was the only people that he trusted. His brother-in-law was his kind of business manager, as he was. And <coughs> yes, I think he was very true to life. If I, if I got to be critical to the film, I would only say that perhaps they concentrate too much in the fight between him and Prost. And let's don't forget that Prost was the number one driver in the world when Ayrton came to Formula One. And that was Ayrton wanted to, 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 to beat, you know. He, he, he never, he didn't want to know where, what was Mansell or Piquet or Rosberg doing. He wanted to know what Prost was doing. As far as we being in the same team, he, what wind is Prost using, what tires Prost using, what springs Prost using. All about Prost. He didn't care about anybody else. Just Prost, Prost. So once he beat Prost, he kind of, got his first step, the second was to be the world champion. And uh, remarkable man, remarkable life. And uh, like I said before, anybody that 
me and everybody that was at the McLaren at the time that had the pleasure and the, the luck to be with Ayrton, we all learned from the man. He was an incredible man. The thing is, you, you weren't just at McLaren. <laughs> I mean, you were the smiling good guy between two warring factions. I mean, they were, they were sort of at war for a time, weren't they? So how did you manage to stay friends with both of them? Oh, well, for me it was easy, I suppose. I was friends with both. I made flavor, favors for them and they made favors for me. I didn't sign the contract, Ron Dennis signed the contracts. I never had to speak money with them, you know, so it was more easier for me and, and of course, when Ayrton came to McLaren, he knew that Prost was there before. He knew I was very close friend with Prost. So there's no way he was going to wanted me to change my friendship from Prost for his. No, he just accepted that he was my friend as well as I was a friend with Prost, if you know what I mean. Well, I mean, I've always thought Joe was something of a, of a magician. Um, when uh, when when Ayrton arrived, um, I had already known Alain for about five years, and we become good friends. Um, and when Ayrton arrived, I got on extremely well with him for a long, long time. Really, until uh, towards the end of 1988, the first year they were together at McLaren. And one day, Senna said to me. Uh, uh, I, I'm trying to remember the exact words, but it was something along the lines of, I'm sorry, you are a friend of Prost. And it, implicit in that was, and therefore you can't be my friend too. And so, I, how on earth Joe contrived to remain a close friend of both of them throughout, you know, remains a, something the rest of us simply don't understand. So I, I take my hat off to you, my friend. No, I mean, no secret there. I mean, I was a McLaren employee after all, you know, and they both were working for McLaren. So if they need a thing from McLaren, they have to go through me. So they have to be nice to me and <laughs> I have to be nice to them. So, uh, Manish, uh, first of all, congratulations. Uh, I feel completely drained by it, actually. <laughs> it's a very emotional film, isn't it? Um, how do you react to what Joe said a couple of minutes ago? About managing to become friends with both, or about no, that no, being no, a triple I mean trail? The, 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 the Prost thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I have to fall back on an answer that Asif often gives. Uh, I think the, the kind of clue in terms of whether this film is partisan or not is in the title. And uh, I think when you, um, when, when you make a film for the cinema, the, uh, the formula that we use, it's almost as rigorous as the, uh, the formula that the FIA used to, um, to, to create Formula One. There's a paradigm for filmmaking. You have a protagonist, you have an antagonist, you have three acts. There are key turning points. It's a very technical thing, filmmaking, actually. And um, I've never written a documentary. Normally, people don't write documentaries. You go and see what there is, and you glue it together, add a bit of voiceover, and you get what you get. But I, um, with this, we created a proper, I hate the word, Hollywood three-act structure. I, I don't like the word Hollywood because, you know, it, it means X-Men 4 or whatever, but... <laughs> with this, it lent itself to a very, very, very straightforward structure in terms of filmmaking because you have this young man who comes from absolutely nowhere and um, he becomes world champion. And that is the end of our first act. And our second act, I, I always called it when, 
we wrote the script. We called it The Struggle because really it all gets going in Formula One when you're number one, as Alain knew. That's when they're after you. That's when the media are after you. That's when you're the target. And I think, unfortunately, given Ayrton's life, um, the third act was always going to be his death. And it was going to be that move to Williams. And um, we were very fortunate when we made this film in that not only did we have the archive from Bernie Eccleston, but um, I think if you look at it, Ayrton was followed by the press well before he got into Formula One. His brother was a gadget freak and had one of the first portable VHS cameras, which is why we have all that family footage going back to the early 80s. And when we saw this, you know, it was, um, it was pretty clear for us that we were making a portrait of a man from his point of view. And that's the most important thing. So it is, it is partisan. And, you know, I, I've gone on record to say, look, I wish certain things had been a bit more balanced. You know, I, as a huge Formula One fan and as someone who knows about it, I wish we'd balanced 89 a bit better, gone into Alain's motivation right up until the accident at the first chicane, because we did that in 1990. But overall, I think, I think you do get a sense of, you know, that the passion, and, and Andrew Benson said it very well, actually, that, that argument with Jackie Stewart, you can either view it as enormously heroic and delivered in a second language, or you can view it as just, just on the edge of unhinged, you, you know, whichever way you want to look at it. But there's something going on there, isn't there? There sure is. Uh, the thing that interests me most of all about, about Senna is what he might have achieved after motor racing, I've got to say. I mean, I went to Sao Paulo and I saw the work the charity does. It's fantastic. I mean, Joe, he could have been just about anything, couldn't he? He could have been president, in fact. Oh, absolutely. I've always seen people ask me, what would Ayrton be doing now on his 50th birthday? And I'm for sure I would be, he would be doing something in Brazil, helping his people. He was so proud of being Brazilian. Always wanted to push the Brazilian image. Always, We all saw it. Always a Brazilian flag on the car. And he was adored by his people. I would, uh, you know, I, I would, I would think he probably could have been even president of Brazil. People said no, he couldn't be a president. He didn't like the political scene. But maybe he wouldn't have a choice. His people would push him so much to to be his man, and 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 I think he probably wouldn't have a. He would do it, and he was well capable to do it. Whatever. This is the thing about Ayrton. Whatever he chose to do in life, he would have been a successful, being a sportsman, um, businessman, whatever. He was so methodic and yeah. in everything he did on his life that uh, he would have been a winner, whatever he chose to do. Yeah, I, I, would, I would certainly go along with that. Um, I, I always felt, I mean, however many Grand Prix we saw him in, Joe, um, if ever I've seen a racing driver to whom uh, winning was almost too important, it was Ayrton. Uh, the only guy I would compare with him in that, in that regard would be Gilles Villeneuve. Um, and I know you and I have had this conversation before. I mean, I, I, Gilles was a very, very close friend of mine. And at the back of my mind, all the way through our friendship, was this suspicion that Gilles was not going to retire from racing. And I remember saying this to you about about Ayrton, and you, and you said, "I always had the feeling if it was going to happen to anybody, it would be him." And I think it was. I think they they shared that that they were um, obsessive about winning. I I, th I always had the impression it took more out of Ayrton than it did out of Gilles. 
I, I mean, I remember watching a, a, a qualifying session when Gilles was asleep in the car, um, literally asleep, and Mauro Foggieri tapped him on the helmets and he woke up and went out and bang, you know, within two minutes he'd done his quickest time. And I, I used to think when I watched Ayrton during a qualifying session, he seemed to have to, to put himself through agonies. I mean, he would then reach a, a level of performance that no one else could match. But it, 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 but it, wasn't, it wasn't easy. It was a great cost to him. What, what do you think? Oh, it was. I can agree with you more. I, I've never seen this uncanny will to win that Ayrton had. I never see that in anybody or in any other sportsman. And he used to go in a trance about qualifying. Like before qualifying, he never spoke with anybody. He just sat on himself and he just run the whole track on his mind. And then he got in the car, he did. And he can strike half a second, maybe a second, as we saw. He, he was a second quicker in Monza, no, sorry, in Monaco and Spa. Two of the races that Ayer, uh, sorry, Alain used to set the standard. Yeah. And Ayrton went and I think you have heard this before that uh, um, I think it was in Spa. He was a second and a half quicker than, than Prost in qualifier. Prost was second, Ayrton was on pole. And he was sitting in the car after qualifying. He never talked to anybody. He went down, sat on the track before he take his overalls and he kind of get rid of the trance he used to get himself for qualifying uh, and then he just changed and uh, and he was sitting in the bottom of in the floor of the track and uh, Alain and I were on the other side of the track and we were looking at the time sheets and he was looking at it and and then saw the time and he said I can't believe it why can he be so quick I never I don't understand not here of all places and then he looked at it and said he's fucking quick <laughs> and and I just look at Ayrton and he saw he heard it and he see me and he just wink his eye and 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 I big smile on his face and I, for Ayrton that was kind of a triumph I beat the man I wanted to beat you know uh, it, it was uh, it was I mean uh, we were so lucky to be with those two yeah. guys. And they, 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 they played such psychological games, though. I mean, do you remember um, Hareth in, uh, in 1988, where that was just Prost's weekend? He was just playing quicker than Ayrton all weekend. And he set a time in qualifying with about 10, 12, 15 minutes to go. Came in and knew that was absolutely it. He couldn't go any quicker. And he rushed away to the motorhome and changed into jeans and, uh, and a sweater and all the rest of it, and then came back to the pits very languidly. Said, oh dear, are you still trying? You know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm finished for the day. And, and I loved all that. And it's something I think, we, you know, I miss very much today. We don't, we don't no. have a duo no. going at it like that these days. I, I remember I, I, we said, Alain, what are you doing? You know, he was changing, putting his jeans and his T-shirt. What are you doing? We still have more tires. It's still time to go. I did my best lap. That was an absolutely fantastic lap. If he can do better than that, he deserved the pole. <laughs> and he was so sure. And he just sat on the pit lane looking at practice. And Ayrton saw him. And the harder he tried, the slower he got. That was brilliant. But I mean, that was, that was motor racing in those days, you know? Motor racing, I always said, is not just cars and engines, it's people, personalities. Oh, yeah, and those were big ones. Well, now, now, it's perfectly clear why he wanted to make this film. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 
I'd like, I want to ask you actually, because it's not a motor racing film, uh, strictly speaking, uh, as evidenced by the rave reviews it's getting from people who know absolutely nothing about motor racing, and people who are going to cinemas to watch it who don't ever watch motor racing. And it kind of bears out the point that you know Senna was so much more than a, ra a racing driver, which I, you know I do find very very. I mean, he was almost a god, manish, wasn't he? When um, when we first started looking at uh, all the material, one of the things that was very obvious we used to um, we used to do little screenings at Working Title. And they have a cinema, uh, not quite as big as this, but we have a big screen to look at, and it, he has a movie star quality, yeah, and um, it's it's incredible. I mean, he, obviously he's good looking, but that's not really it. There's um, there's something about the way that you feel his emotion. Uh, Nigel was saying, you know, it, driving really takes a lot out of him. I think you see that. Absolutely. You see it every single time you look at him. You see a guy who's just giving everything, and you can't help being drawn into that. And when you know when he's angry, you know he is furious, and when he's happy, you know it's a grin from yeah. here to here. And um, it was something that we felt very quickly. And one of the challenges of making a film like this, I, I remember when when we started, they said, "Well, you know, isn't it going to be cars just going round and round a track with um, guys with helmets on? How will you know?" Who is who? And I remember somebody saying, well, couldn't you just put a little sort of arrow? Can you just imagine watching a lap Rost Senna? But um, actually, I think, you know, you said it. I mean, Senna's a character, but, but so is Prost. And that's the point. These guys really have personalities. And once you, you lock onto who they are, everything they sort of do in a car continues from that. And one of the things I'm really proud of is I love motor racing. I absolutely adore it. And I... Um, I always feel that people don't give it a chance. They assume it's a bunch of cars going round and round a circuit. Um, but once you scratch below the surface, I mean, you have everything in motor racing. You have drama, you have death, you have politics, you have money, you have sex. I mean, it's all there. Sure. And um, for us, it was just a question of really just teasing those things out. Once you do that, look at people. They just go. They're happy. Um, Joe, I think we, we have a bit about Ron Dennis here. So... <laughs> When you think about the season with Alonso and Hamilton at McLaren, which was pretty much a disaster, quite honestly, wasn't it? And, and Ron never got a handle on it, did he? And yet, with Senna and Prost, that was a much bigger deal. And he, he obviously had some kind of handle on it, didn't he? Yes, I have to say, um, I was very surprised that come the year where we... Well, sorry, we. I wasn't there anymore. McLaren had... Uh, Alonso and Hamilton, and I thought, my God, this people sometimes paragon that rivalry with Senna and Prost. There was nothing like it. There was those kids. I mean, there's no way. <laughs> I was, I was very surprised that Ron didn't got the the situation under control. And to be honest, that was the only time that I really felt sorry that I wasn't at McLaren. I mean, Alonso is a brilliant driver, absolutely brilliant driver. I don't like him as a human being, and I think he's been a little bit spoiled. Having said that, Hamilton was a bit spoiled too, but I, the or fact even that- even a lot spoiled. Yeah. <laughs> I think Alonso never really integrated with the team. That was a big thing. And I don't know, by then, uh, Ron lost his, yeah. or, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I. I couldn't believe it. that situation should have been controlled and Alonso should have stayed at McLaren and I'm sure he would have been champion with McLaren. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Actually, 
I remember talking to Gerhard Berger about um, about the Prost Senna era at McLaren, because of course Gerhard went to McLaren after I left to go to Ferrari, and uh, and I said, you know, tell me what you thought about it, and he said, well, it's perfectly simple, you know. He said, uh, Ron thought he was running the team, Ayrton did run the team, <laughs> well, I mean and and as long as Ayrton never made a big thing out of it, and Ron could be seen to be the man running the team, then that was fine. <laughs> but that's that's typical Berger, isn't it? What do you say to that, Joe? You were there. You were standing there all the time. No, I have to say. Well, the thing with Ayrton, and we saw it in the film, he has such an unbelievable personality, besides his charisma and everything, that you cannot help. You have to listen to him. I uh, very often have a conversation with, with Gerhard. I said, Gerhard, I said, the trouble with you, you're not, you're not strong enough. You don't stand the, 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 the uh, table like, uh, like Ayrton. I remember we were first and second in Belgium once. And y the debriefing, you couldn't believe it. You know, we w Ayrton was, and we only first and second because Williams had trouble and Ferrari had trouble, you know. And I said, for God's sake, come on, Ayrton, you know, the cars were okay, we have no problem. Let's have a glass of champagne. And we talk tomorrow about next. Oh, bugger you, you know, no champagne. We're, you know, he was absolutely unbelievable. And but he was also right, I think, yeah, if was, I remember that race. Yeah, he was right, but <laughs> come on, you know, you, right. you cannot imagine the amount of work you do to get to a Grand Prix. And if you win it, and you were first and second, Come on, let's celebrate. Have a little drop of champagne, and then we talk about it the next race. But no, with Ayrton, he wasn't. You can see how this guy survived. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I'm sure you'd like to join in. Uh, who'd like to start us off? We, we can hear you, by the way. We haven't got enough microphones to do a, a roving. Yes, we have. Okay. Uh, but please do feel join in if you want to. Anybody? Yeah. Okay. Third, fourth row. Yeah, okay, you're there. Hi, guys. Um, I'd like uh, particularly Joe to tell us about some of the antics that Senna got up to, uh, particularly with Gerhard. I hear about passports being thrown out of helicopters and snakes in <laughs> hotel rooms and all that. I wonder if you can give us a glimpse into that side of uh, Ayrton. Well, actually, it wasn't Ayrton's side. It was Gerhard that started but Gerhard was a complete animal. I mean, uh, it was just, it was no stopping with, with Gerhard, you know. First of all, I remember Gerhard going in into Manserogie boat in Monaco, which all the beautiful people were there. You know, in a boat, you have to take your shoes off, put it in a basket, and walk up and go for lunch. But he just took the basket and all the Gucci shows, <laughs> shoes were in the sea. And they were, he was dreadful. And I, I remember uh, getting the passport of Ayrton, and on his picture, drawing up uh, a man's uh, yes, bits. <laughs> anyway, Ayrton didn't know, he didn't see it. So he went to, I don't know where it was, the next country, Argentina. Yeah. He was going, and when, when the custom people see it, they were not impressed. So <laughs> he, he was in big trouble. And then the, the next one, uh, they were going in a helicopter from the hotel to Imola, to the circuit. And uh, Gerhard took um, the briefcase of Ayrton and off, opened the, wind, the door of the helicopter and threw it out just before. And when, when they landed, Ayrton was looking, where's my briefcase, where's my briefcase? 
I don't know where your bloody briefcase is. And then it was a little uh, an old boy running out with a briefcase. Hey, your briefcase fell off the... the <laughs> and he couldn't believe it. Wow, and the briefcase, it was all, you know, bent. And Ayrton said, bloody hell, my briefcase it was a thousand pounds briefcase. Oh, that's your fault. You should have a 50 quid like mine. He said, no problem. <laughs> And, 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 and Gerhard still have the audacity to say, it's your fault. Uh, anyway, he said, you're lucky. I tried to un undo the catch, but I could only do one, and the other one, I couldn't do it. He was actually going to open two catches and open the briefcase in the air. No, then from then on, I think they stopped. I mean, Gerhard used to go to the motorhome, you know how Ron Dennis is, so perfect, so uh, meticulous, and he had all his clothes he was going to wear after the race to go back home, you know, put him in the motorhome all beautifully. And Gerhard got there with the scissors and cut all the trousers <laughs> and the shirt. So then Ron had to go back with his Marlboro uniform, which he hated. And so in the end, Ron and, uh, and uh, Ayrton decide that said, stop, we cannot beat Gerhard at jokes. <laughs> I, actually, I always thought Gerhard I thought Gerhard was tremendously good for Ayrton, um, and and he said to me once he he said when I knew I'd achieved something with Senna, he said we were driving in Milan. Uh, it was after actually after Gerhard had left and gone back to Ferrari, and they were in a Ferrari driving through Milan, stopped in traffic, and Ayrton just grabbed the keys out of the ignition and just hurled them out of the window, and they were in thick traffic. And so there's Gerhard scrabbling around on his hands and knees under sundry cars and was trying to retrieve the keys. And Gerhard said, that day I just thought, I've made a bit of a breakthrough with this guy. He's, he's finally starting to act like a human being. And he said it, it, was, it was, really was as if he'd had a sense of humor all along and never realized it. Very true. Yeah. Uh, in Gerhard's own words, he said, he teach me to drive and I teach him to laugh. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, a bit more of a serious question, but do, do you think uh, Ayrton was rattled by Schumacher's pace in '94, and uh, did he see him as maybe the next the next star, and maybe he didn't have the answer to his pace? Um, yes, yes, no. <laughs> well, no, for sure. Ayrton knew that uh, Schumacher was the next guy. He has to look in. I can't remember, maybe you would remember, uh, Nigel, the uh, French Grand Prix, mm -hmm. where the start of the race, yeah, and, and uh, at the start of the race, Schumacher um, hit pre pre uh, Senna, and, and then it was start raining, the race stopped, Senna couldn't restart, and then... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. After the rain, when they restart the race, and Senna didn't have a car anymore, so I remember he said to me, you watch Michael, and he walked into Michael. I could not hear what they said each other, but I could just see... I heard some point in the film and hit him, uh, Michael, uh, and Michael very serious and and listened to what Ayrton had to say. And then he came back, Ayrton, with a big smile, and he said, okay, I have already um, spooked him. And and uh, in the restart, uh, uh, Schumacher went off in the second lap. So, uh, yes, it would have been. I, I, I think that's what I, I think all of us and the whole world missed when Ayrton died because we were going to have the most incredible fight between Schumacher and Ayrton, because Schumacher was fantastic. I mean, okay, all of the champions that he had, he wouldn't have it if Ayrton wouldn't die so early. But it was for sure the next guy coming, and we missed that. We missed all those fights between them too. I think also you, you must remember that in um, 1994, Senna put that Williams on pole in all three races. And um, I remember watching Ada um, live. And if you, uh, the director cut away actually to Schumacher watching Senna qualify. And um, actually, I don't know if you remember when he comes out of the last corner, Senna actually went wide, very slightly wide. A little puff of dust came up and uh, he came through. He was three tenths faster. And Schumacher did, literally did that. He just looked at the monitor like that, which I would do if I had traction control and was beaten by Senna in that race. <laughs> I think that point is worth making. I mean, it's it's quite difficult to talk about. Um, it's a long time ago, and we all have our suspicions and feelings about what was going on at that and time. And our legal budget isn't enormous. Um, I, somebody senior at Williams told me that, I mean, I remember Aida, um, where Senna was... It was, it was not intentional, it was just one of those things. Uh, I think it was Hakkinen, wasn't it, at the mm. first corner? Yeah. And Ayrton uh, stayed down there for several laps and watched, didn't go straight back to the pits. And when he did, he said to the Williams guys, those two Benettons are two entirely different cars. Uh, and the one leading was behaving differently from the one that wasn't leading. Um, and I confess, I, I mean, I have always been, to a degree, uh, haunted by the thought that at Imola, Ayrton was driving out of his skin to stay of a, ahead of a car that was perhaps yes. questionable. Yeah. Yes. That's always, that's always, always worried me. When, when we were at Bernie's archive, because you've got to remember, we didn't CGI anything you've seen. There are no actors. This is all real footage. Um, in the sequence that we did for Imola on Friday, when Senna goes out, you see him spin at the bottom of Tosa. Then he corrects and goes up the hill. You, you saw the wheel smoke. You saw the, the spin. We actually um, just watched all of the all, all of Bernie's um, Bernie's archive. The the cameras are all numbered, and the cameras on the track are all set at certain corners. And they just literally just just do the same movement. So you'll see Senna, then you'll see Hakkinen take the corner. Schumacher lost it at exactly the same corner on the same day, and the same camera got it. And we, we, we do actually have this. He spins off in the same way, and you should see the Benetton when it goes out. It just goes, 
like that. There's no wheel spin. It just coughs twice. It just does that, and then it goes straight up the hill. And I remember we, we had a version of this where we actually cut that in. And the, the problem was, you know, so we could say allegedly, but um, the problem was it, it, it destroyed the pace of the film. I mean, you know, there wasn't space for, for Schumacher's traction control there. Okay. Uh, yeah, another blue shirt. Just, you got it, Jenny? Yeah, you got it. Three acts and all that good stuff, and with all the footage you've had access to, uh, are the motorsport enthusiasts going to see something, or potentially see something bigger, longer, more motor racing focused, or or the the story you've wanted to tell the whole time that doesn't fit within a cinematic hour and a half? I think the um, the problem with that will always be licensing the footage. I think you know. I Bernie's been incredible. We had a deal for forty minutes. He doubled it at the same rate, even though the contract would have um, gone through the roof at the 41st minute. And I, I don't think we will, we, you will see anything more than that, I'm afraid. Um, what we've done, certainly, though, on the, uh, the Blu-ray version of this is we've put 50 minutes of talking head interviews in that, and we've cut them in. And there's a lot more Alain, actually, in that. And I think it's a lot more balanced myself, because he's a, little, well, he's a lot more reasoned about what was going on in the early years. And um, certainly, you get a lot more Alain at Imola. I mean, what, one of the problems we had was for all the cameras that were there, um, still and uh, moving, we could not find a single image or bit of footage of them together. Because you can imagine how brilliant Imola would have been to see Senna go to Alain and kind of, goodness me. Actually, I think, uh, sorry, Nigel. Um, Joe, I think your feeling is that they would have been able to be quite good friends. I think I'm right. It was your feeling, wasn't it? Oh, yes, for sure. Um, I remember a line the, the night before he died. He said, oh, I just had lunch with Ayrton, and he was very warm. He was a different person, and I really like it. I was really, I think we could end up being good friends. And I said to him, for sure you're good friends. I mean, he respects you so much for what you have done, and, he, and you respect him. And it's so much respect between the two that you have to, you have to be friends. And I wish... I wish that so many things have happened in that even earlier on before talking to Nigel. Uh, um, Alain proposed to Ayrton in Japan the race before his last Grand Prix win in uh, Adelaide with us uh, to exchange helmets in the last race, and that would be a fantastic thing. But I didn't know that till after Ayr uh, after the last Grand Prix in, in Adelaide which, uh, of, of Ayrton, which he won for us. And I wish I knew before because I would have made sure that they would exchange helmets. And it was, I was very happy that they actually um, shake hands in the podium like, like they did. And it, 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 it's, it's one of the, uh, I fight it for, or try for four years for them to be friends and shake hands. And it didn't happen till the last day race of, of Ayrton. But it was a shame because. They, they, for sure, we would have been. They would be friends. I, I think that's true. I, th I think, well, you know, anybody who was in Imola that weekend has their own memories of it, and it's there and it's indelible. Um, I, I mean, I remember very late morning, and I was just going for, on, on race day, and Alan was just going for lunch. I think I'm not sure with whether with Williams or with Renault. Yeah, home, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and we only spoke for two or three minutes, but he he he, he already. He, but he was saying to me, uh, you know, I cannot believe, you know, what what's happened to Senna. 
and he said it was this morning it was warm it was friendly you know and it was and it was it was such a new experience for Prost he was obviously quite shaken by it they'd spoken on the phone lots of times because after Alain's retirement um, I hit and rang him several times and it was nearly always to talk about safety and in fact he had an idea that he wanted he would he would have liked Alain to be even though retired president of the GPDA and, and you know and Alan was thinking about it um, so I'm sure Joe is right I think I'm sure in the fullness of time um, they, they would have become friends proper friends because as Joe says they, the respect they had for each other I don't think either of them seriously ever worried too much about anybody else um, the, there's one story sorry that Pierre Van Vliet who's in, in the film he was the TF1 reporter at the time told us which was that at the Bercy Canting Championships at the end of 93 for Philippe Streff. Um, Senna was only able to compete because he'd just switched from Shell to, um, it was Williams, um, it was Elf. And um, so he was contracted to Shell right up until the end of the year and he managed to convince them, look, what if I go in white and we'll, we'll have a white cart? His cart, um, when he arrived there, he was with Adriane and um, he uh, had to leave Adriane, who only spoke Portuguese, with Pierre, who didn't speak any Portuguese at the time, or spoke a little. And Pierre saw Alain and Ayrton in the changing rooms, and he said it was like watching two little school kids. They were joking and laughing, you know, whacking each other with their overalls. And he said, yeah. And I think that, that, that Alain said one thing, which actually, for me, summed up what you were talking about in terms of level of competition and that intensity. And when you turn it off, he's a different man. It was that actually at Adelaide, um, sorry, at Suzuka, when Senna had won, um, Alain said to him, look, um, I think we should probably have a moment now where there is a reckoning, because I don't know if we'll ever be on the podium again. I'm world champion. I'm retiring. We all know this. And Senna was, no. No, we're not going to do this. And then, of course, at Adelaide, he pulled him up. And, and Alan said the reason why he did that was because it had to come from him. And that was a really big thing for him. Yeah. Exactly. Now it was um, uh, I'm keen for everyone to have their say because, yeah, uh, Jennifer, it's three quarters of the way back. White shirt, you're on, you're on it. Okay. Because, uh, by the way, Joe has come all the way from his hideaway in Spain to be here tonight. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, now's your chance, huh? Thank you, Joe, for coming all the way from Spain. Uh, <laughs> we've just watched lyrical about uh, sort of the softer, um, less visible relationship between Prost and Senna. As the team manager, can you give any sort of anecdotal stories about, you know, uh, Prost being the number one, Senna moving there as the, the protege, the new guy, and sort of um, configuration differences, and who had the best engines and chassis, and whether there was any sort of you know intense rivalry over that. I, I'm I'm not sure whether if I understand the question well. I mean, 45 years of Grand Prix racing, having done my years very well, so I'm 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 not sure if I did understand. But if uh, when Ayrton came to McLaren. Prost was number one, so he was the guy that Ayrton wanted to beat first of all. And obviously he was very conscious that uh, Alain wasn't just a McLaren driver and he came in there like a Honda driver. No, he wanted to make sure that 
everything was the same. So I remember we used to have, um, we had four or five engines for the race and they were all like that. And one week, one Grand Prix win weekend, uh, the number one mechanic of Prost choose the engine. And the next Grand Prix, the number one mechanic of Senna choose an engine. And the mechanics did know nothing about any the engines. They were Honda and they didn't know which of them would have been the best. So it was absolutely, it was absolutely the same for both both guys. I mean, if you ask me what was the difference between the two drivers, when Prost had a, a good car, balanced to his like, he was untouchable. Ayrton could not touch him. Like we were talking early before in the French Grand Prix or in the Spanish Grand Prix in Jerez, where Prost had a superb car. He just did a qualified lap, got out of the car, and Senna could try and try it, and he never catch him. The difference between the two is that when, when the car was not of his like, Ayrton is just to stay in the car in the last 10 minutes of practice and, and adapt himself to the car, and then he would have been quicker. And invariable, he was quicker than Prost if he had the time to adapt to his car. But if the car was... 100% to his like a line was always the best, but it's uh, how many times you have a car to your like. I mean, it's not, not, not very often. And earlier on, we were talking about what happened in Imola, and just to show how good was Ayrton and how much he could, um, um, what is the word, to uh, improvise to make the car better. I, Michael Schumacher, after the race, he said, I could see Ayrton, he was out driving the car. There's nowhere that car could go the whole distance being driven like Ayrton was driving, no way. It's either Ayrton get tired and slow down, and then I could pass him, or he would go off the road because he cannot control it at that speed. He was out driving, the car was, he said, in the boss of Michael, the car was really not good, but Ayrton was making. And he was in pole position himself, not the Williams car. That what Ayrton had, it was something, especially for a one qualifying lap, he could extract so much speed out of a car that anybody has done before or will ever do. Uh, that was the number one asset of, of, of Ayrton. Uh, yes, I, I can see you, and I think we can pass the microphone. Or oh, You've got it, Jenny. Hold well on. What are, you, what are your personal views on the on the final accident at Imola, obviously off the record, what you think might have caused the crash, whether you thought it was the tyres or the steering column or the or Schumacher? Well, <clears throat> off the record, I we're talking about a Tamburello corner in Imola, which is not a corner, it's just a bend straight. Nobody ever take the foot off the throttle in that corner. Every, it's a flat up. Everybody goes flat. So you're telling me that the best driver in the world made a mistake in Tamburello? No way. No way. But, you know, uh, the thing is, like, uh, the accident happened in Imola. And in Imola, um, it's in Italian, Italian laws, and uh, there is no such a thing as an accident. So somebody's got to be responsible. So they have to dig up to who was responsible for the accident. And this court case took 10 years. Adrian New came f from Williams to McLaren, and I had to do all the translation of the paperwork of the low case from English to Italian for 
for uh, Adrian and I, I was sick and tired of it because I thought, what's the point? You know, we're not going to bring him back to life. Just let it rest. You know, he's gone. He's finished. Surely Williams didn't want to get rid of the driver that they were paying a lot of money and he was the best in the world. So forget about it. But unfortunately, in the Italian laws, you have to go to the whole thing and it took 10 years. But um, anyway, as we know, there was not the fault of... Actually, I just have to mention because um, Damon, which is a good friend of mine, and I like him very much, I admire him for his career, he'd actually say in the end, well, nobody ever have said, but perhaps it was uh, Ayrton's mistake. And I was really mad, and I have to call him and say, for God's sake, for the memory of Ayrton, you can't say that. You know, how could he? He would not make a mistake in that corner. But I guess I could understand that uh, Damon just wanted to get the whole um, court case finished and get uh, Williams out of the case. And um, I, I understand his uh, reason, but uh, for the memory of Ayrton, I would have never said that. I understand that, Joe, completely. I mean, for what it's worth, from everything I heard, from everything I think I know, I, I don't believe the steering broke. I really don't believe that. Um, and I've talked to Damon at great length about this, and essentially what Damon, I think, is saying is not so much that, that Ayrton made a mistake, was, but more that Ayrton was way beyond what his car was capable of. Um, and I know Damon has always had this, this feeling that, you know, they had just had these laps be behind an atrociously slow um, safety car. I mean, at one point you can see Ayrton draw up alongside it and he's waving his arm because it's some, I don't know, some wretched Fiat Saloon or something. Pace, pacing Grand Prix cars. What was it? It was an Opel. Oh, all right. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I thought it was something sort of cheapo. Um, <laughs> and, and, and other drivers in that race have said, you know, the first lap, two, three laps, you know, before the accident happened, they were in problems because their tyre temperatures had gone way down and therefore the ride heights were reduced and at that period of time, ride heights were incredibly critical anyway. And I think, I think all really Damon is saying is that, that that he wonders if the, you know, he was just going from his own experience, and as he said, you know, I wasn't going anything like the speed he was. Um, but I know Damon wonders if the tyre temperatures were still down, and therefore the tyre pressures were still down, and therefore the ride height was still not quite what it was. And I think as Richard Williams alluded to in the film, it's, it's possible that the, um, you know, the, the, the block, as they call it, uh, the car bottomed out, and it literally just you know, skated off. I, I'm, I'm not saying that's what happened, but um, I, for sure it wasn't a, a pure driving mistake, that's for sure. Um, did uh, um, Ayrton ever conf uh, confess to want to drive for Ferrari at all? Luca de Montezemolo said that on the Thursday before he died, just after he did the Carraro bike launch, he came out to Modena and uh, he told him that he wanted to end his career at Ferrari. So the question was whether he was going to be at Williams for two or three years, which unfortunately contradicts something that Ron has always said, which is that he was going to come back to McLaren. But Montezemolo is very firm about that. I, I think, in fact, doesn't Adrienne mention that in her book? I, I, I have a, a memory that she yes. 
says that he'd mentioned this more than once, he wanted to end his career at Ferrari. Yeah. Yes, I, 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 would, uh, I would agree with that for sure. Um, the one thing that I could, I tried so hard, we all tried so hard at McLaren to keep him. And the one thing, the one argument that he always brought to me that I couldn't, I couldn't compete is that he said, look, I won races with Lotus, I won races with McLaren, I won championship with McLaren. But, you know, people start saying, oh, it is McLaren. You keep winning with McLaren. It must be McLaren. So to complement my life and my career as a driver, I had to win with other cars. I, and I could see that he was going to Williams because at the time it was the best car. And eventually he would finish his career at Ferrari for sure. I, I was just going to add one little thing. I, I was at Ferrari, I think, in 87 or thereabouts when, when Ayrton was at Lotus. And um, and I asked the old man if he had any interest in having Ayrton Senna, this brilliant new, um, and he said yes, because the old man spoke much more English than he wanted you to know, and that was the thing. He always pretended not to, but he actually, you asked a question in English, he would sometimes start to answer it before he'd remember that he didn't speak English. Um, <coughs> and he said that, you know, they had spoken, and I said, did it come to anything? And he said, no, no, maybe in the future, but the driver's demands were uh, imaginativo. <laughs> yeah, hi, uh, hi. Um, my question for Joe and for Nigel about him leaving McLaren and going to Williams, the pressure that was on him at that time in his life. Um, I know Nigel wrote recently that he said that when he saw him after the Paris event in the karting in 93, when he went to Williams in 94, he looked every bit of his 34 years. And I felt myself that up to that point, he was a young man, but seemed to age terribly in the couple of months after leaving McLaren. You spoke to him on the grid. Uh, he was crying. Was it before the last Grand Prix? You said if you win this... I, I, I didn't speak to him on the grid at No, sorry for Joe. No, no. That if, 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 you, if you win this race, you said I in McLaren, uh, I will love you forever. Do you feel he was under a lot of pressure in his life at that point to prove maybe to another team or...? I, this is probably one of my mass, my well, it's certainly my last memory of Ayrton, and um, he was um, driving his last Grand Prix for McLaren. It was a lot of emotional on that Grand Prix because uh, it was the uh, last Grand Prix of uh, Prost. He was retiring, and at the time we were neck and neck with Ferrari with 103 Grand Prix wins. So if we won at the light this year, we would have been the automatically be the most successful Grand Prix team. So in the grid, he was just about to start the race and he said, he sort of called me. And I don't know why, because we all had the um, radio. He could have said it on the radio, but obviously he wanted to say something just to me or, or he, I thought maybe he wanted me to do his belts, but he normally he did it himself, the last little pull. So I went in the cockpit and he said to me, I, I really feel very strange to be doing this for McLaren for the last time. And I said to him, but if you feel strange, imagine how we feel. You know, we didn't ask you to go. You are leaving. We don't want you to stay. Uh, and I said to him, well, I, I don't need to tell you how important this Grand Prix is for us. So if you win it, I love you forever. And then I could see his eyes, and then they were all, they were, started, they were watering, and he was a very emotional guy, and then suddenly I worried, that, my God, I, I got it emotional just before the Grand Prix. But he was a very emotional guy, but he, he could control it. And um, 
anyway, he he went ahead and uh, won the race, and, and Prost was second. It was a f they shake hands in the podium, and it was a fantastic. After the race, we had a, a Tina Cons Tina um, Tina Turner concert in Adelaide. And uh, we were sitting at the front, and Tina went up and got the Ayrton. And you can imagine the whole place was coming down. It was simple. <laughs> yes, I saw simply the best, and I'm getting emotional just to think about it. It was a fantastic evening. And then after we um, we had a, a team dinner at the Tractoria, Italian Tractoria that he used to like in Adelaide, and one of the motorhome girls um, keeps putting um, whiskey in, in Ayrton. Ayrton liked whiskey, he never drank, but when he did, and uh, he got paralytic, and we, we <laughs> I gave him the steering wheel of one of his wins, I think it was the Monza Grand Prix, and then I make a little speech to him, and I said, well, you won 35 Grand Prix with McLaren, you done so many pole positions, so many fastest lap, blah, blah, blah. If you can beat that with another team, go ahead and try it, but I'm sure you're coming back to McLaren. <laughs> no, it was a, a really superb day. I, I, I would remember forever. I think that's a wonderful note to end on, and uh, thank you so much, Joe, for coming all the way from your peaceful, sunny little hideaway. Thank you very, very much. And thank you, Manish, very much. And a great film, thanks. Thank you, Nigel. And uh, thanks to all of you, obviously. But before we go, we have to pick the winner. And Joe's going to do it for us. You take a piece of paper out of there, and the lucky person gets to the Motorsport Magazine Hall of Fame in 2012. And Steve Sopper. Soper, did I say it right? It's not Steve Soper, it can't be. Is it? Oh my god. I think shall we pull that shall we pull another one? Yeah, Steve Soper. Well, I think we'd invite Steve Soper anyway, wouldn't we? Edward, what do we do? We pull another one. Sorry, Steve, if you're here, you're probably gone. You here? Can't see you. Yeah. Mr. C. A. Malidana. Malidana? Fantastic. I think Steve can come anyway. Well done. Come up and get it. Come up and say hello. Come on. Anyway, uh, if you haven't all read Memoirs of a Racing Man by Joe Ramirez, I suggest you go and get it. And actually, he told me on the phone the other night, it's only 10 euros in paperback. Bargain. Anyway, thank you all for coming. Great night. Thank you very much. Motorsport will be organising more of these events in the future, so do keep checking motorsportmagazine.com. Motorsport Mag Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. For the very best in motor racing.